Olasu. For these last few mornings, maybe the volume a little bit higher? Uh, Jim? How's the volume? Yeah. We need the volume higher? This is a test. This is a test, Frank. Not yet. Yet. Higher? Higher? Stage four? Stage seven? Stage nine? How's it now, Jim? Is it okay? Francesca? Come si comes out? A little bit higher? Oh, there is an echo, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, lasso. <laughs> How about now? <laughs> is there a ghost in here? They've, they've changed, they cha- they changed the setting. Can you get it back to it, what it was? It would be nice to have. Yeah. <sighs> well, our time is very short. Our very time is very... Oh, man, that's weird. <laughs> that's really weird. All right. But nevertheless, since this is what I'm about to say is not utterly essential, um, I'll go ahead and say this now as we hopefully get that fixed. Um, it's just a little anecdote, but it's one that's uh, part of my own life and has obviously remained with me for a very long time. I think I was maybe 12 or so when this happened. Yeah, it was in school. And so the class gathered. I can't even remember which teacher it was. But the teacher said, all right, class, we have now a very limited time for you to, and this is going to be a test on how well you follow instructions. And there's, there's, a, whole direct, there's a set of directions of things that you need to do and, and you have a, a relatively short time to do them. So I want you to follow the instructions very, very carefully, uh, and you'll be tested on this, or graded on this. And before you begin, read through all the, read through all the instructions, and then begin. Okay? So it was rather a long list of things. Trivial, kind of mundane, pointless tasks. Um, and so I, like I think every other person in, in the class, every other student in the class, glanced through the whole set of instructions, but it was a lot of them, and we knew that the time was very short, and so basically just started to work. And it was like, take this piece of paper and rip it in three places here, and now do this, and it, just one meaningless task, but a lot of detail. And one step-by-step, and looking at the clock, man, we're running out of time, and now do this, and, and write three little lines here, and just one trivial, meaningless task after another, one after another after another, and then finally, as we see the, the hours about come to an end, we, I, I came to the final point of instruction and, said, and that said, ignore all the previous instructions and sit quietly. <laughs> and I looked at all the other students and they also had shredded pieces of paper and all kinds of, all the crap that they put us through. And I was one of them. And there was no way you could hide it. You could, no way you could kind of... Like, <laughs> You know. And of course, the instructions were at the beginning. Read through all the instructions before you begin. And not one of us did it. In the meantime, we spent the whole hour devoting ourselves to completely meaningless trivia. 
only to get humiliated at the end. <laughs> that was our reward. <laughs> All right. And so what's the moral of that story? This whole eight weeks has begun with a very, very simple practice that's very, very easy to forget entirely about. And that is settling your body, speech, and mind in its natural state. And one could almost say that the whole of the teaching is included there. So that's what I'd like to do this morning. Now, as you well know, we've already we've finished with our one-on-one -on -one meetings. Uh, but what I'd like to do now for the, re, for the remaining four days, including Thursday, of course, is that I'll stay with you until 10 o'clock. We'll have a guided meditation each of the mornings, and we're going to do shamatha. For each of the mornings, just a 24-minute session. And then I'll try, to, uh, I'll try to deal with the mail here and also try to find some balance of, uh, of responding to live questions right here, okay? So that'll be the mornings. The afternoons will be something different each afternoon. And so it's pretty reasonable now. The, ec the echo's gone. Come see, come see, yeah? Just okay. Uh, but our time is very precious, so let's just jump in. Danny, if you can continue tweaking that, that would be great. There'll be no new material here, at least not for a couple of days. Uh, but I would like to go back and just give you a refresher course. And this morning it will be mindfulness of breathing. In a spirit of loving kindness for yourself and others, which is to say the aspiration to find genuine happiness and to cultivate its causes. In the spirit of kindness, let your awareness descend into the body. Or illuminate the space of the body right down to the ground. You've entered a non-conceptual space, to, so to the best of your ability, don't bring any concepts with you, any rumination, any chit-chat. It simply clutters this space. While letting your awareness rest in its own place, seated upon its own throne, so to speak. Let your awareness illuminate the whole space of the body. Here and there, by way of the density of the earth element, you may note areas that feel constricted, tight. Gently attend to them as you breathe in. 
as you breathe out, release. Soften all of the muscles of your face, especially those around the eyes. Let your forehead feel spacious. Let your eyes feel soft, relaxed. Having settled your body in a posture of ease and comfort. And optimally, if not during this session, when you're meditating on your own, in the supine position. To utterly relax the body. And from that ground, let your body be still. And at least psychologically adopt a stance of vigilance, of clarity. If you're sitting upright, let your sternum be slightly lifted, keeping your abdomen loose and relaxed. Let the sensations of the breath flow down to the belly. Then moving on to a subtler challenge in order to gently let your mental speech come to rest in its natural state of effortless silence. Take on the increasingly subtle challenge of letting your respiration flow in its natural rhythm. And this can be done if and only if your mind is very quiet. You'll drown it out with rumination. And that will prevent the respiration from settling deeper and deeper into its own natural and healing rhythm.
remember that the key is the outbreak, taking advantage of each one as an opportunity to relax more and more deeply in the body, surrendering your muscles to gravity, to utterly releasing the breath, and to simply letting go of rumination. And the key to the out-breath is the very end of the out-breath. You must be especially silent here so that you can be thoroughly present in the present moment, releasing, releasing all the way through the end. And if there's a pause, let there be a pause. And when the time is ripe, let the breath flow in of its own accord without pulling it in, without inhibiting it. freely receiving the breath that flows in of its own accord so that you remain as relaxed as the breath flows in as you were when it flowed out. releasing all thoughts pertaining to the past and the future. And allowing thoughts to arise pertaining to the present only insofar as this internal coaching or guiding yourself in the practice is helpful. Apart from that, let your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment. balance here is to relax more and more deeply, especially with every outbreath, without losing the clarity with which you began, 
when the in-breath is long, note that it is long. When the out-breath is long, note that it is long. As your mind quiets and the whole system of body-mind settles into a deeper state of equipoise, when the in-breath is short, simply note that it is short. And when the out-breath is short, note that it is short. Let the light of your awareness illuminate the whole space of the body and bring to this space exactly the same quality of awareness, of mindfulness, that you bring to the space of the mind when you settle your mind in its natural state. Attend closely, freshly, moment by moment, observing the tactile events, earth, water, fire, and air, Observe the tactile feelings or somatic feelings that arise within the space. But whatever arises, simply observe its nature. Without distraction, without grasping, without preference, without identification. Whatever arises, just let it be. Letting your awareness illuminate this space and whatever arises within it, but without your awareness becoming cognitively fused with that space or with the events that arise within it. View the somatic space as if from the perspective of the substrate consciousness. clear, luminous, and non-conceptual.
quietly and clearly, let your awareness illuminate the whole space of the body. Mindfully breathing in, mindfully breathing out. Attend to the whole body. In this shamatha practice of mindfulness of breathing, we selectively attend just to those sensations associated with the in and out breath. Which becomes subtler and subtler and subtler as you mindfully breathe in and out and the whole composite system of your body is soothed and calmed as it settles in a state of equipoise and your mind does likewise.
the natural course of this practice following the teachings of a Sangha. Involves the sensations of the breath, of the prana, becoming subtler and subtler. And simultaneously, along that same course, conceptualization will diminish and diminish further and further. Until your mind slips into non-conceptuality. The sensations of the breath, the prana, dissolve into space. And your awareness shifts from the desire realm to the threshold of the form realm. And you achieve shamatha. Keep it simple. It's the nature of the practice. So, did you get it? You did. What's that? It's not loud enough. It's loud enough now. It's echoing now. They really did a number on that sound system, didn't they? All right, our time is short, though. There we go. Off we go. So, I'm, there are a lot of questions here that have piled up. I see a lot of very familiar handwriting. Um, oh, we can see whether it's better. Is this any better? Nope. This is better? I don't think so. It's not on. <laughs> Some of you are very easily satisfied. <laughs> is this any better? Okay. Good. I don't like holding things in my hands, but if necessary, there we are. Okay, here's one. In settling the mind practice, and again, what I'll be doing here, because I have not read through, I think, any of these questions, is I'm going to respond now only to the ones that are totally practical. All kinds of interesting theoretical ones. We don't have time. So I'm going to suggest Andrea Capalari. Oh, he knows really what he's talking about. But you have to ask him, because I can't give away his time. Only he can give away his time. He's not here. But he can blame me. Oh, lasso. In settling the mind, practice does space of the mind. Okay, and this one, um, uh, Steph mentioned that was already answered. 
So that was the first one. So I won't answer it. I think everybody's clear. I'm, so second one. I'm trying to imagine in this morning's equanimity meditation being free of attachment to things close. Yeah, that's a tough one, of course. Like nirvana and aversion to things far, samsara. Would this, exp- would this be experienced as satisfaction, contentment with wherever one is in one's circumstances now? That is, kind of acceptance of the present moment, whether that be suffering or liberation. That's a, that's a, obviously, this can be interpreted in many ways. I think that's a good way. And of course, the very notion of samsara, of nirvana somehow being close and samsara being far flies in the face of intuition. But I was going way out on a limb when I gave that interpretation of it. Uh, again, in that association with the meditation on great upeksha, great equanimity, and the tutgel level, the highest level of Dzogchen practice. But in the meantime, equanimity, sure, that would be good. To maintain that, you know, re- letting your awareness rest in its own space and just maintaining the equilibrium, that composure, that calm, uh, it really strikes me that whenever we get upset about anything, and I mean even a little bit of irritation, tiny bit of frustration, you know the image that comes to my mind? is a pot of milk on a stove. And when it boils over, that's it. Every time it happens, just what we're saying, what we're saying to reality is, I can't, ha- I can't handle reality. I'd like something else, please. Exactly. What do you think the chances are? You know? And so, yeah, maintaining that kind of composure, contentment, just ongoing day-to-day taking delight in the opportunity to practice Dharma. A lot of people don't have that opportunity. Makes it very precious. Olaso, another very good um, practical question, it looks like. If one is in formal or semi-formal shamatha retreat, in between meditation sessions to help with mindfulness, if one uh, chooses to hold the view, the view in quotation marks, by visualizing oneself as a deity, an environment as a pure land, should should one also recite the deity's mantra? You may. Uh, take that step by step. I will be returning to this. Uh, some quintessential advice from Atisha uh, a little bit later in this, in this retreat. That will be in the afternoons. Uh, use the mantra. And what I would suggest, unlike a habit that's become very, very common now, especially when we start getting into the numbers racket. And the numbers racket is how many do I have to do before I'm pure? 100,000? Can you knock that down to 10,000? I'll give you candy. Can you knock it down to 5,000? How many do I have to do? And then once we get the number, okay, then I'm, I'm going to be so fast, I'm going to whip rip through this. you know. And so what I would suggest is do the mantras slowly. Slow down. And then use them as directed. That is, don't use them as a mind number. Use them as a real focus of practice. Bear in mind what Shantideva said. And that is, if you're doing oral recitations and so forth, and your mind is wandering, it's pointless. So, then why do that? Why not be quiet and be mindful, rather than being blabbering and not mindful? Okay, uh, th- these are very good questions, and, and they're off. They're not pertaining to our practice here immediately, but they're very good questions. I'm going to read them, and then give a different type of response. Can you say something about the dying process? And how can one be of help in that process? And how can, how can a non-Buddhist prepare? Uh, there's really, there are a number of very good books on this, but I don't know of anyone that's better than Sogyal Rinpoche's book, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. It's got a very good section on that. It's really outstanding. It's really, really good. So overall, all of the teachings that we have in shamatha, 
are really good, because that's exactly it. When you're settling the substrate consciousness, that's exactly the trajectory for dying. All of the practices in the four immeasurables and the four greats, really, really good. And all the practice in Vipassana, really good. And others practice Dharma. Unless you thought I was holding the really good teachings for another retreat, you know, for people of sharp faculties, unlike all of you. How does an individual with, with the ability for remote viewing apprehend what's happening the other side with no dependence on the retina cortex, etc.? Okay, it's a theoretical one, but I'll give a really short one. Um, you must be, it's actually a very legitimate question. It does pertain to our practice. And that is, here's my best, best shot. If you're, that's remote viewing. But if you're, if, you're tap, if you're meditating along and then you just have some clear knowledge, I mean, it's just bang on. This is intuit, intuitive knowledge and not a hun, hunch or a guess or speculation. Um, well, if you've achieved shamatha, then, and, and, and the knowledge is of some experiences of past lives, that makes perfectly good sense because as you're achieving shamatha, you're tapping into the substrate consciousness and that, nominally speaking, is where all those imprints from past lives are stored. So you're, you've just hit it, you've, you're tapping into the hard drive you know, where all the data is, is accessed. So mystery solved and why shouldn't you, right? And so there's that. But then, this, but then far more mysterious, intriguing and calling for then a richer theoretical framework to make this intelligible is remote viewing, so thing, seeing things right now, that is, and you're seeing it with mental awareness, of course, uh, things that are distant in space. Okay, there's one. Well, your substrate consciousness hasn't been there. Is it, it isn't there now. Your substrate consciousness is kind of localized where you are. And so if you had only a two-tiered model of consciousness, coarse mind and subtle mind, then there's no explanation. There's going to have to be m magic, right? How could you possibly know anything that's distant in space right now? Your, your coarse mind isn't there. It's rising independence upon the brain. Your substrate consciousness isn't there uh, because it's localized. It's, it's associated with the prana at your heart chakra. So that wouldn't make any sense. And likewise, precognition. I, I don't think that was asked. Precognition. How can you possibly know what's happening, have any premonition, any intuitive knowledge of what's happening in the future? Your substrate consciousness hasn't been there. Right? It's in time. It's conditioned. It's flowing in samsara. And so, at the same time, this type of knowledge is said to come as a result, even before realization of emptiness or of rikpa, is said to come simply by achieving shamatha and working with that ability. And so my strong sense here is that by, as your mind settles into, and some, sometimes it happens karmically, and that's just more mysterious, but here, more methodically, something is more predictable. When your awareness settles in the substrate consciousness, you really are in a very clear and fluid space, and bear in mind, there's hardly anything, and there's nothing real that separates your substrate consciousness from rikpa. And rikpa is non-local and atemporal. So you've settled in this, again, as if you've sent, sent the Hubble telescope of your awareness beyond the atmospheric distortions of your coarse mind. Rumination, expectation, hope, fear, desire, speculation, guessing, and so forth. You've, gone, you've shot beyond that. So like you're 300 miles up. And so even though you're very, very close to the Earth, nevertheless, that's a lot like deep space in terms of just how much, you know, what, what's, the, what's the, uh, the space quality there? And so, and then what's, the diff what's in between? If you're 300 miles up where, where, this, where the Hubble telescope is, what's the difference between that space and the space between galaxies? And I have to say, not a whole lot. And so the very strong sense here is that by tapping into that dimension of consciousness, 
then you can have spikes. Um, if you allow me to be a bit science fiction-y, kind of a, a wormhole from that dimension, which is still local, the substrate consciousness, but like a wormhole from that that may illuminate very specifically something distant in space by the directionality of your attention, something distant in time. But then are you omniscient? Can you just see anything anywhere in space and time? Of course not. But where there's a special tr- strong, strong, strong karmic connection, where there's a strong focusing of attention, this seems to be possible. This is an area for further research, where there should be you know, very, very rigorous research, primarily contemplative, but bring in the scientists. Let, let them come to the party. Okay? So something of that sort. Yeah, but it clearly has nothing to do with the retina and, or the visual cortex. It has only to do with mental awareness. And then recall that the organ, so to speak, the sense faculty for mental consciousness is not the brain. It's not the frontal cortex. The f- sense faculty among the, six, the, among the 12 sense bases, the, this, the sense faculty for mental consciousness is mental consciousness. It has to be the substrate consciousness. I think by a process of elimination, it doesn't make any sense to say anything else. The sense faculty is immaterial, it's non-physical. And it is that independence upon which your conscious state of mind, the coarse mind, arises. Well, process of elimination, substrate consciousness. So there it is. That's your access to it. Okay, this one looks a bit far out there, up to crossing over and all of that. So I'll get to that maybe later. Here we go. Uh, as you mentioned, when returning to a socially engaged way of life, could you know? I think that's actually quite accurate. We're not putting it down. Not, not putting, we're not saying it's real as opposed to what we've been doing here being phony. That's silly. Uh, so socially engaged. I'll stick with that. Returning to socially way, socially engaged way of life, we might expect relaxation, stability, and vividness we've gained on this retreat that will subside on occasion for sure. Yeah, I mean most likely. Maintain, maintain, maintain some baseline of a regular practice in that mode of life. Should we decide to take a short or long retreat from time to time, might we find it easier to ramp back up to where we were while in retreat, or is it starting over again from that point? So it is, kind of a, is it a Promethean task? Isn't that the term? Of rolling a ball up the hill and then back down again? The really good news, now this is not speculation, faith, or belief. This is just empirical observation because this is now the sixth of these eight-week retreats I've led, and that was after two three-month retreats. The, the data are in. To my mind, they're un, unequivocal. And that is overall, if you've not achieved shamatha, fully achieved it. And then I'm going to interrupt. If you've achieved shamatha, why does this only say that's ro- so robust, durable? Why does he say that you're not likely to lose it? And I'll give my strong guess here. It's an informed guess. And that is when you've actually achieved shamatha, something now occurs very dramatically that was happening somewhat incrementally along the nine stages, but now happens in a definitive, decisive, rather dramatic way. And that is this radical restructuring of the functional pranas within your body. They're called lelung, the functional pranas. They are now working like they've never worked before. Okay? Your Your body has become supple, malleable, flexible, light, buoyant, and overall serviceable because of this extraordinary tune-up job that you should be able to maintain for the rest of your life. And it's physiological. Physiological still, as long as we're embodied, the physiology is the basis for the arising of mind. Right? That's why the, even Gautama, after six years of ascetic practices, even his mind was weak. Even this great, incredible bodhisattva, even his mind was weak 
when you let it get starved and emaciated and all of that. So we had to build up the body, and then you could achieve enlightenment, right? Well, when you achieve shamatha, then there, there occurs not irreversible, but a robust, profound tuning, refinement of the whole prana system, and that continues. That continues. And independence upon that, then the suppleness, the malleability, the single-pointedness, the serviceability of the mind continues as well. Okay? So having so that shamatha, and that's why it lasts so well, because it's really deep, deep transformation is taking place in your whole prana system. Keep that for the rest of your life. Okay? You really should, unless some major accident, car accident, or some other major damage takes place. And so, but now prior to that point, again, you'll, many of you have had spikes of some, some of you bliss in the body, some of you a lightness in the body, a stillness, and so forth and so on, as well as mental bliss arising, clarity arising, non-conceptuality. So a number of you, quite a number of you, had spikes, these little sneak previews of these qualities of the substrate consciousness that are flowing in with their somatic corollaries. Uh, but until shamatha is achieved, then if you go back to a socially engaged, way, and socially engaged way of life, we have a lot of activities, demands on your time, and so forth, then of course, uh, then it's just likely, very likely, that the relaxation, stability, and vividness of your attention will erode. But now finally getting the answer is, the, the, and what is unequivocal, there seems to be, there isn't, and, now, and I can say also from my own experience, and that is when you do go back to retreat, even if it's a weekend retreat, let alone if you go back for a month, two months, six months, or maybe at some point decide, okay, now shamatha or bust. You know, now I'm going for shamatha. I'm not coming out until I achieve shamatha. The clear answer is you've, you're, it's not Promethean. You're not back to square one as if you've never gone on a retreat here. It's more like, and this is a very strong analogy, it's like being rather fluent in a language, not using it for some time, and then coming back into a milieu where that language is spoken and finding your learning curve is really, really fast. And if a person saw you from outside and didn't know that you used to be pretty fluent, they say, my goodness, you're a genius. I've never, learned, I've never seen anybody learn a language this quickly. And your pronunciation is really good, too, if it ever was. You know. And so it's much more like that. It's much more like regaining a language skill. That, you know, when it, if you've not, like my, for myself, like German, I used to be quite fluent. And I'm clearly not, by any criterion, am I fluent in German? I'm not. But I find when just spending a few days in Hamburg, then I read the newspaper and say, like, wow, I feel clairvoyant. I think I, actually, I know what that's about. And they're saying so many words that I did not know I knew. But when I see them in print and the words, you know, put together in way, meaningful ways, I say, wow, it's not that far away. And yet I haven't been fluent, for, fluent in German probably for 20 years. It's a long time, but just not using it. So that's a strong analogy. So be of good cheer. You know, be of good cheer. This is, this is not faith-based. This is clearly empirical. Uh, and that is, within a relatively short time, I think you will find that the relaxation, stability, vividness that you achieved here will recur. And you'll have it, you'll establish that baseline all over again, and then onwards and forwards from there. Okay? Olaso. That's a good one. Then we have more time. Oh, yeah. From Elizabeth. If, as Majimika seems to imply, Buddha nature, Rikpa, ultimate reality are empty in the same way, everything, same way everything else is empty, does this not easily fall into nihilism, especially in terms that are not well understood and explained? Well, sure, this is why one of the Bodhisattva precepts is not to teach emptiness to people who are unprepared. Because they'll, they'll, they'll hear you say, well, from the perspective of emptiness, there's no, there's no good and evil. And that's from the perspective of emptiness. Yeah, there's no karma. 
Oh, but by the way, there's also no suffering. So if you think, oh, I believe in suffering, I just don't believe in karma? Eh, got that one wrong. So sure, there's a possibility, but if it's taught skillfully, then one should really be able to protect people from that foolish notion. Because the notion that none of the things, things exist uh, is foolishness. Um, and bear in mind also, Buddha nature, Rikpa, when all is said and done, I mean, it's, sure, I mean, the words that come out when people have experienced it and they're trying to say something intelligible as they're referring to something that is utterly ineffable and inconceivable, words like luminosity and emptiness come out a lot. They're just fingers pointing to the moon, as you know so well. That, that's all they are. Because when, especially when we're dealing with this dimension of reality, Rikpa, pristine awareness, it's beyond all conceptualization. Okay. So on the other hand, if Rikpa, ultimate reality, is in some sense real, it's the ultimate reality. It's not in some sense real. Compared to it, everything else is mere illusion or doesn't exist at all. Right? You remember in the, in the conversation with, uh, with Lawrence Freeman in London, I made that reference to the cloud of unknowing. That is, when one enters in Christianity into the highest states of contemplative knowing, all other knowing appears to be not knowing. But then for a materialist or just a, mundane, a person with a mundane worldview, they, if, they, if, you know, if they see a person... Well, there's one person, a very, very famous Western philosopher, American philosopher. He said the most that can be said of Christian and Buddhist, he was being very generous to include both, Christian and Buddhist contemplatives, the most that can be said for them, those who go off for years in retreat, is, well, at least they're not harming anybody. In other words, as far as he's concerned, they may as well be just picking their noses, you know, for year after year, just doing deep, dredging canal work, you know, because that's all their meditation's worth. In his mind, he's being a hard-boiled materialist, saying human beings are robots, mindless robots made of mindless robots. From his perspective, if you're meditating, the most that can be said is, well... Okay, you're not hurting anybody. Okay? So, for, for I understand. From his perspective, that is a rational and intelligent conclusion. It's just that his perspective is completely bonkers. You know? So, that's it. So, it's symmetrical there. Right? From the perspective of Rick, but everything else doesn't exist. This is why Padmasambhava and so forth says, does not exist, does not exist, does not exist. Shantideva is saying the same. They've realized emptiness. They've realized Rikpa. And everything that we grasp onto is real. This thing doesn't exist at all from that perspective. Just as the materialist, the mundane person, the person totally fixated on hedonic pleasure, would see a person sitting quietly in a room watching the breath and say, I see, you have no happiness at all. You got zero. I mean, you're just sitting there with your breath. I really pity you. Right? A person who's just achieved shamatha. Oh, I pity you. I'm going to go out and have some sex. So, Sure. So in, if one says, oh, this is real in some imply, even though t totally beyond concept of designation, this could be construed as eternalism. Well, sure, this is why Padmasambhava, natural liberation, when he comes to the end of his section on shamatha, which is awareness of awareness, he says, first of all, he said earlier, he said, some people put view first, that is, you get six years of training and you study all the sutras and the four schools, of all that kind of stuff first, and then you get to meditation after, maybe. Or you go through 12 years of Kempo training or 20 years of Geshe training and so forth and so on and then get to meditation, maybe, maybe not, you know. 
And he said, my approach and Penjana Bache. So this is not a Nyingma versus Gulupa thing. Penjana Bache says the same thing. And then there's the other approach, and that is experience first, meditation first, and let the view come out of the meditation. Penjana Bache, who is said to be an incarnation of Atisha, who is said to be the speech emanation of Padmasambhava. It's an inside job here. They're saying meditation first. Let the view come out of the meditation. And Padmasambhava in Natural Liberation says, if you're introduced to Rikpa before you've settled your mind in its natural state, then you may, then whatever you've understood of Rikpa may simply become an object of the intellect and lead you to dogmatism. And that's it. So you're either stuck with nihilism or eternalism or metaphysical realism, whatever, but just reifying Rikpa. So it's very true. So, so strange. Here's one of the greatest lamas in the whole Galupa tradition, Padmasambhava, don't need any commentary for the Nima tradition. There are their words. Oh, it seems like they're almost universally ignored. How very odd. In the Western world, and even the modern world, where nihilism is so prevalent, is it not far less dangerous than falling into, into eternalism? At least thinking ultimate reality is real still provides motivation for practice and transformation, whereas nihilism seems to destroy all motivation other than hedonism. It's very true. <coughs> it's very true. Yeah, I think materialism is nihilism with a very thin mask. Because if you, if you poke into its center, you see there's just nothing there. There's no ethics, there's, no mur- there's, there's nothing. It's just nothing. So, quite true. So if you're going to fall to one or the other, uh, better fall to eternalism. As His Holiness has often commented, I've never heard His Holiness say a single good word about materialism. Science, absolutely, as I do. I, I'll, I'll sing the praises of science, you know, for hours and hours, and I've already done so. But I've never heard His Holiness say one thing, well, there's a real advantage to scientific materialism. I've never heard him say one word in praise of that. He doesn't beat it quite as stringently or obnoxiously as I do. But never heard, never heard him say one word. Whereas when it comes to Christianity, Judaism, believing in a truly existent, inherently existent God, creator, wishing to please the Father, looking upon all one's fellow sentient beings, or at least human beings, as all children of God, and so forth, he's often spoken of the, of the value of that. Often spoken of the value of that. You know? So there it is. So my answer is yes. <clears throat> and then, okay, Steph gets one here. Okay, um, we have a couple of minutes here. Um, this is a very good question, I think, relevant for everyone. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm unaware about how to go about planning home practice, that is, when to focus on shamatha, vipassana, four immeasurables, in your experience for students at home. Is it best to have a weekly structure like we've been doing here? Uh, for example, sh- uh, uh, AM shamatha, that is, morning shamatha, afternoon vipassana, weekend four immeasurables, or just keep it unplanned, do what I feel like at the time, Oh, I don't know if I can trust you that far. <laughs> young, young lady like that, I don't know. Maybe, I think it's party time. <laughs> no. So I'm, I'm, guess fo- I'm guessing focusing solely on, pro- on shamatha is not advice. <clears throat> so throw in a bit. Look like you're, you're mixing a salad. Throw in a bit of vipassana and the four measurables here and there, or when I feel like it, or want to change. It's a very, very good question. <coughs> the answer is, um, three basic food groups, 
Ever heard me talk about that before? I know Miles has. Um, in terms of a balanced diet, because this is what we're seeking is really nourishment. To, to nourish, to sow the seeds of genuine happiness on all levels. To be sowing the seeds to nourishing ourselves, finding a greater sense of well-being and solitude and with others. So you've really struck balance when you see the, op- the opportunity for solid coming in, com- coming up. You say, oh, maybe I could take off a day once a week. Oh, I say a weekend is coming. Maybe I can do a little retreat. Or maybe, oh, maybe I can go longer. A month, two months, maybe longer. And when you see the prospect, oh, I could spend some time in real simplicity and solitude, really devote myself single-pointed meditation. And that brings a smile to, the, a smile to the face. And then when you've been in solitude, and then you see, aha, I see I can really be of service out in the world. There are people out there who would really like me to engage with them. I think I could really do some good out there. And that brings a smile to your face. So breathing in, breathing out, if they both bring a smile to your face, then you're following what Atisha said, be always of good cheer. Right? So then to answer the question, three basic food groups. <clears throat> the first one is shamatha to make the mind serviceable. So uh, I would, I frankly cannot remember the last day, or I can't remember the last day that I wasn't practicing shamatha. That is, I think that's just part of a stable diet, right? Every day. So I'm shamatha. And then, so there's one, one basic food group, make your, make your mind serviceable, no commentary needed. Second basic food group, food for the heart, nourishment for the heart. A warm heart, a good heart. As the Dalai Lama said, a good heart, that's my religion. Kindness is my religion. So the four immeasurables, the four greats. And then, depending on your worldview, your degree of, of how do you say, trust, commitment, and, uh, dedication to Buddha Dharma, then some devotional practice, whether it's taking refuge, Guru Yoga, Sadhana practice. Or for that, again, there may be people here or listening by podcast. You may be devout Christians. Wonderful. Wonderful. Then bring your, your Christian devotional practice. All of this is very nurturing for the heart. So, there's that. I call vertical food for the heart is devotional. Horizontal is out to all sentient beings by way of the four measurables and so forth. And then finally, every day, every day, to some extent, food for the mind, for wisdom, for insight. And so whether it's your Vipassana practice of any of the sorts, the Pali Canon approach to the four applications of mindfulness, the emptiness approach is taught by Shantideva, but also very importantly for the growth of understanding, knowledge, insight, wisdom, all of that, contemplative reading. And this would be then going against the grain of how we often read in the modern world and that is getting a really good Dharma book, whipping, whipping through it in a week, and then slapping it shut and thinking, wow, that was a really good one, and then putting up it on the shelf and never looking at it again. You know? Um, so in other words, reading Dharma books like novels. If you re- I, I, I very rarely, but once in a while, I'll read a novel. And when I finished it, pretty much I think, good, bad, indifferent, and I never look at it again. I never think about reading it again. I mean, there are classics that are worthy of that. But overall, when I read a novel, I figure, okay, I've read it. My life is short. I'm not going to read that one again. Right? And when I'm reading through it, I don't matter, it doesn't matter how quickly I'm reading. If I'm enjoying it, then that's that. And I read pretty quickly. When it comes to Dharma, if we read Dharma books like a novel, then, then we're kind of probably getting the benefit of a novel. Right? So contemplative reading, where as you're reading, you're taking it in, and that means be very selective when it comes to Dharma reading. There are a lot, a lot, scores and scores, has to be hundreds, 
of really good Dharma books now, from translation from the various Asian Buddhist languages, translations from, from Asian teachers, uh, translation from Western teachers, or, or, initial, or, or original writings from Western teachers. There's an awful lot of good, and there's a fair amount of rubbish, or, and a lot of in-between. Good Dharma mixed with dirt, and I, I know some, I'm not, and I, don't want to, I will not give any names of, of titles or authors. I don't want to do that. It's not my job. But I will say this is a fact, that there are books out there where you, you look on page 5, and there's some really good Dharma, and you look on page 10, and it's just crap. It's just crap that the person made up out of sheer speculation or brought in from someplace else, you know, picked it up from the side of the road. And so you do want to be very discerning. You want to be very discerning. And so there are quite a number of lamas. You can say, well, anything by His Holiness, anything by Dujun Rinpoche, anything by Dungu Kenzin Rinpoche, by Sakya Tinsin Rinpoche, from Kalur Rinpoche. I mean, there's a number. Just pick up anything. It's going to be really good. You don't have to worry about it. There are some Western scholars also, scholar practitioners. Tenzin Palmo, for example. Anything she writes, it's good. Manchu Ricard, anything he writes, it's good. Don't worry about it. Because, you know, there's... They just know what they're talking about. They really do, and they don't mess with it. It's just good all the way through. And then there are other, some who don't know what they're talking about, and they write anyway. And again, all you have to do is sell a lot of books. You become popular, and then you regard it as an authority just because you have a lot of people reading your books. Man, imagine if that were true in physics, where some bullshitter started writing a lot about wormholes and, and all kinds of really cool things, doesn't even have a high school education in physics, gets really popular, and then it's regarded as having all the authority of, you know, a physics professor at MIT or Cambridge University. I mean, that's when, you know, you would have been like Martin and had already pulled out all of your hair. <laughs> out of frustration, you know. You say, these people should not be given the platform. You have no degree at all. And yet you're being treated like an authority. It would drive you crazy if that were the case. And happily, that's not the case. Not the case. No, not the, it's just there. There are criteria. Are are the people who write in science who maybe don't quite know what they're talking about? Well, sure, people are flawed. But Buddhism, there's no quality control at all. Zero. Anybody can say I'm a Buddhist and start writing anything they like, and if it's popular, then they'll start be regarded as authority. So that's really quite awful. But there's nothing we can do about it. But what we can do is be discerning, be discriminating, read contemplatively. Read contemplatively, but be very selective. And if you're not quite sure what's good and what's not, ask somebody who really knows. And there are quite a number of people. Andrea is one of them. He really knows his stuff. And of course, other people do as well. Okay? And then, balanced diet. So just, just like food. Uh, so it's good to, good to know those are the f- three, ba- three basic food groups. But on one day, might you wind up wanting to do 80% shamatha and 10% of the other two? Another day, find, oh, I just re- I'm really just immersing myself in the four immeasurables. Another day, pick up some marvelous Dharma book and just find you just can't put it down. You'd really like to read more and more. But then don't spank yourself and say, no, no, go off and do something else. So let that be flexible. So find a middle way there, not just doing whatever you feel like, because it, w- it will be unsatisfying that you feel your whole practice is guided by whimsy, just by well, whatever I feel like now. That's one extreme. The other one, obviously too rigid you know, just locked in. So like an art form, like a haiku, like so many other things, find that there is some structure that you really are satisfied with, that it's balanced, that it's, it nurtures you, and then within that, uh, then be moved by your intuition, and then be moved above all by loving kindness. What would you really love to do today? Okay? Let your whole practice be moved by that. Not what, I, what should I be doing today? Yeah? And Alad, 
Deutsche, ein Deutscherin. Höre an, jetzt, bitte. <laughs> and everybody else who is extremely good in discipline, and almost all the Germans I've met have been very good in discipline, uh, and then having many other good qualities as well. But one can't overdo that. And so striking the balance, striking the balance. And there's an easy way to do it, and that is let your whole practice be motivated by loving kindness for yourself and for others. Then you can't go wrong with a little bit of help from your friends. Good. I have a meeting with Andrea, and I hope he doesn't beat me up for having referred so many people to him. Enjoy your day, and I'll see you at 4.30.